Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? It's good to be with you. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here. I'd like to begin with a question. The question is, what is God like? What's God like? It's an important question. I would argue that your answer to this question has a more profound implication on your life and all of the activities of your life than we often give credit. What is God like? You can start on kind of like a meta level. Is he real or is he fiction? But let's go more personal. Is he a personal God with a personality or is he an abstract force? What's God like? Is he involved in the day-to-day affairs on planet Earth or is he aloof and distant? What's God like? Is he angry or is he loving? Is he vengeful or is he gracious? What is God like? Our answer to that question, first, hopefully corresponds to reality. But second, regardless of its correspondence reality, affects our life. For example, if a child breaks their dad's favorite watch, what will shape the response of the child? Does the child run to the father, Dad, I've broken your watch. Can you help me fix it? Or does the child hide in fear if dad finds out what I've done? That's rooted in the perception of what is my father like? What is God like? And it would make sense if we concluded that we can't know God. Like That would make sense, right? Like if he is God, you know, like all powerful over everything, How could we know him? It would make sense if that was our conclusion. And in some ways, there is a reality that we cannot fully comprehend the nature of God, like in time, active, but over and beyond time. Like, how do you make sense of that? Giving human agency, but yet sovereign over the outcomes. How can we comprehend that? The God revealed in Scripture, triune, three persons in one. How would we comprehend that? It would make sense that we might conclude that we cannot know God accurately, except God has revealed himself. The bold claim of Christianity, this is massive. This is so significant. I think this is, I don't think we give credit to this. The bold claim of the Christian faith is that God has revealed himself. He's made himself knowable. Well, we cannot know him totally, we can know of him accurately. Wow. He's revealed himself in history to his people, the people of Israel, then the church, and through them to the world, through his word, and supremely he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. This is how the apostle Paul described what we're talking about in Colossians chapter one. He says, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you wanna know what God is like, if you wanna know what he's like, Anybody want to know what he's like? I want to know what he's like. I want to know him. If you want to know what he's like, look at Jesus. Get a look at Jesus. Get as clear of a perception of Jesus as possible, and you'll know what God is like. And that's the heart of this series. As we go through the book of John, We're looking at these miraculous moments in the life of Jesus that point to something about the nature of God, the essence of God. So that's what we're gonna do today. The text I've been 
asked to invite us into is John chapter 5. And as Mariah read, verses 1 through 18. And I'm going to read the whole thing again and ask you to discuss it with the people around you in just a moment. But before we do, let me just take us into this scene. It's a wild scene. I mean, it's, it's an awesome scene. What happens in it is unexpected. Like, a guy's healed, but then people are furious about it, you know? And then, like, this guy's healed, and then when he's asked about it, he's like, I don't even know who that guy was. Like, it's just, it's a peculiar scene, and it's a dramatic scene. And so we'll just look at verses 1 through 3 and just pull out a bit of context And then I want to just explain a little bit about what's going on with all the Sabbath language, and I'll read it again and we'll discuss. So it says this, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And so what John has been doing so far throughout his gospel is anchoring sort of like plot points in the story around key Jewish festivals. And I think it's just important to note, like Sabbath, Jewish festivals were deeply important for the religious life of the Jews. And so it says that, There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, what's interesting is if you went to Jerusalem today, you could go visit this site. There was a church on top of it excavated down, and they found this site. And so today you can go visit the site, but in the first century, this was a place that was believed to be a place of healing. Practically, it's one pool. Well, actually, it's kind of two pools. I don't know if you can picture it, but it says there's five covered colonnades. And so you can see these like covered almost like porches with nice coverings around one side, a second side, a third side, a fourth side, and then one right down the middle, splitting the two pools. Five different columns with coverings. And then in this scene, what's described is all, because it was perceived by Jews and pagans to be a place of healing, people who were sick, blind, broken, would gather around this pool. And so the scene that we have is many, many people who are not well gathered in these undercovered areas. Now, interestingly, depending which translation of the Bible you have, if you go to verse 4, In your Bible, in mine, it just has a footnote driving you down to the bottom to read. But in some, you might have verse 4. Let me explain what's going on here. In the best quality and most ancient manuscripts, there's no verse 4. But in many later manuscripts, there was almost an explanation added. It's as if some people who were scribing this as accurately as possible wanted to give some explanation. Why are they gathering around the pool? And then when, when the paralytic late, or the invalid later says, like, you know, whenever the water's stirred and I can't get down there, no one beats me. It's like, what's going on there? And so this is what it says in the footnote. So at some point, someone had added this kind of explanation to help us make sense. It says this. Some manuscripts include here, holy or in part, that they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And so because this is not in the most early, ancient, and best quality manuscripts, that's not word of God. We don't take that as word of God, but it gives us insight into the minds of the people there. It's a really helpful commentary. So what we have is like almost like a superstitious belief this is what they believed. And there's lots of, you know, historians are trying to work out, like, was there an undercover, underwater sort of, like, movement of water and it would actually bubble up? Maybe there was some sort of supernatural force involved. But the, the, the superstition was this. If, all, if we as sick people gather, when, when the waters begin to move, the first one in gets healed. And so obviously news had spread, and it kind of speaks to the desperation of the people there. 
They've gotten to the point where they don't have access to the kind of health care or medicine. They go, man, if anything I can do, I can find myself with people in a similar situation as me, and I will wait out here. So that's a bit of context. And then there's a ton of dialogue in this text about Sabbath. Did you notice that? A lot about Sabbath. They're reacting. He's doing it on the Sabbath. John's like, specific to point that out. And then the religious leaders react because it's Sabbath. Let me give you a quick primer on what Sabbath is in the religious life of the Jewish people. To understand Sabbath, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 2. It says this in Genesis chapter 2. This is the creation account. This is the, the description of, of, of the God who created with his speech the world. It says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. I love that. God finished. It's done. It's whole. This is perfect. This is great. Everything as it should be. He made this thing with great delight. And it says, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, was God tired on the seventh day? No. So for him to rest, it speaks to something different. It speaks to his delight. It speaks to him saying, this thing's done. And now I'm going to enter into the thing for which it was created. That is to have a harmonious relationship with my people. That men and women would know God, know one another with peace, have peace with themselves and even with creation. This harmonious picture. And as we know, if you follow the scriptures through, that that harmony that God would enter into on that seventh day was broken by human sin, fractured. But nonetheless, God invited his people to almost remember who he is and what he made them to be by keeping the Sabbath as a practice in their life. And so we see this many times in the Old Testament. But for example, you can read Exodus chapter 20 that says this, remember the Sabbath day. This is a command for the people of Israel. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. So none of you, if you are my people, you do not work on that day. And it was a big deal. Like if you follow the thread, like you could just Google Sabbath scriptures and you follow the thread, they're not messing around. Big deal. Now what's interesting What's interesting is the religious leaders took this command to not work on the Sabbath, which really spoke to the idea of like not doing your regular labor. And they added 39 categories of different types of labor you're not allowed to do. This is the spirit of the legalistic religious spirit, is to sort of go, okay, I got to follow this. So important to follow this. And it's almost like you add laws to laws. And there was this adding of laws to laws to the point where we find ourselves in this story with a perception of even this guy picking up his mat. Because one of the 39 laws that they added to the law was you can't carry stuff unless it's a person that you're having compassion on. But even then, they're kind of like, best be safe not to. That was the idea, you know? It's like this intense kind of legalism. And so that's why you see them reacting the way they did. Now, there's one other thing that we need to notice. The invitation for the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath was to point backwards to something, right? To remember what God did on the seventh day, right? So it wasn't just about like resting from work, although that's part of it. 
I think that's important why we would keep even Sabbath today, that we would have healthy rhythms into our life. But it was meant more than that just to point backwards, to see something. Okay, God, what did God make this world for, this wholeness, this unity with him, this harmony? And well, we don't experience it. So we look back, but then it's also always meant to look forward. Sabbath looks back, but it always looks forward. And this was often missed by the Jewish people. It's often missed by us. It's always meant to look forward of a future day where God would bring about the wholeness that was marred by sin. That there would be a great restoration, healing work. We are a people with souls that are not at rest. We were made to be at rest in God. And what Jesus is doing is bringing us into that harmony for which we were made. This is how Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Listen to this language. So Paul is writing after Jesus, okay? Because Paul understands that what Jesus coming to earth fundamentally changed cosmic history. And so he says, these things, speaking about Sabbath and the religious festivals, things we're talking about in this text, these things are a shadow. It's a shadow of the real things. It's a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Sabbath always points to Christ. Like that rest that reminds us that God delighted in what he made reminds us and is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the one who brings about the full restoration our souls were made for. Okay, that's my contextual work. I'm going to read the whole thing again, because more than anything ever as preachers, we don't want you to hear our thoughts. We want to invite you into the text. I'm going to read the whole thing again, and then I'm going to invite you to turn to your neighbor and answer two very quick questions about it. So here we go. With that kind of contextual work done, it says this, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, he replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Turn to one or two or three people around you and just answer these two questions. What stands out to you from the text? What stands out to this passage in the book of John? And what does this reveal about Jesus? In other words, what does this reveal about the nature of God? Go for it. I'll give you a few minutes to discuss. It's one of my favorite things to do. What stood out to you? What do you see? And that question, like, I think it's one of the most important hermeneutical questions we can ask. What does this reveal to us about who God is? What's he like? I want to look at two things it reveals to us about the nature of God. What it reveals to us about who Jesus is. So I want to first look at the compassion of Jesus and then the power of the words of Jesus. First, the compassion of Jesus. If we could go there with our imagination, it's a desperate scene. Reading verses three to six, you see a great number of people have gathered. They're lying there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. You might ask the question, what is the sound of the scene? What's the smell of the scene? What do you see? It's a desperate scene, people without access to medical care and technology that we would take for granted living in Vancouver today in 2022. And the desperation is amplified by a few other things. Like, do you feel the desperation of like, why are they there? That maybe on a superstition, one person might get to the water. Like there's this hopelessness. Sometimes I wonder if that's why Jesus asked, do you wanna get well? It's like, has this guy after 40 years lost all hope? Do you even want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's a desperate scene. 38 years, four decades. And then when Jesus says, do you want to get well, he can't, all he can recall is that no one will help me get into the water. It's a desperate scene. And I want to draw your attention to verse six. And when I was preparing this message, I didn't know that the team was having David up this week. Because what David experienced, and it makes a lot of sense as a disciple of Jesus, when he went to this place, he saw and he learned, and he couldn't look away. And look, what Jesus, look at Jesus. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been there in this condition for a long time, he responded. Jesus saw and he learned, and he was moved with compassion. I don't want us to take this for granted, that Jesus is moved. We see this again and again in the Gospels. If you follow the thread, he's constantly seeing people in need responding. One of the best examples of this is Matthew chapter 9 when he's looking at the crowds. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw their political distress. He saw their social distress, their spiritual distress, and even their physical distress. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd because he's the heart of a shepherd father who goes, I want to care for these people. The text, when it says compassion, it literally means he's moved in his guts, like something in the core of Jesus is moved when he sees and learns of the condition. And this is a window into the nature of God. It's a window into the nature of the compassionate God. God is moved. I know this sounds funny, but he's emotionally movable. Listen to the way that God reveals himself. In Exodus chapter 34, 
Moses is boldly asking God for something. Such a bold. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. Moses dares to ask. And then God, like in massive generosity and kindness, reveals himself. And what we're about to read are the words of God to Moses, which is self-revelation. A lot of people talk about God. Here we get to hear God talk about himself. Wow. God, what, when God says, I want to introduce myself to you, like, hey, who are you? God says, I'm going to come and introduce myself. Look at the words. Listen to how God introduces himself to Moses. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wow. I love that. I want to know that, God. God goes, how would you describe yourself? Okay, here goes. This is who I am. I'm compassionate. First word. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm overflowing in love. I keep my promises. I sustain love to more people than you can count. I forgive wickedness rebellion and sin, and yet I'll hold evil to account. And so in the person of Jesus, we discover that God is not aloof to human suffering. I think for a long time, I just assumed because of God's power and omniscience, he was more like a robot than a person. You know what I mean? You know how when somebody increases in power more and more and more, they become out of touch with human experience and suffering? And so that's why we have, like, corrupt dictators and leaders who are, like, treat people like pawns. Any study of world war, you go, you, you see them treating people like pawns because they're out of touch with the actual pain and suffering of the people. And so it, it could stand to reason that God, being, like, supremely powerful, supremely over it all, might be more like a robot in the sky. I think we pray to him like that. I think we think, well, it's like, he's obviously not moved by the pain and suffering, He's not moved by the things we've talked about already in this service. But what we see in Jesus in the self-revelation of God, he is moved with compassion. He's not hardened by power. He's not out of touch with pain. He's not calloused. He's tender. He's tender towards those in distress, and he's tender towards you. This is how the living God has revealed himself. Tender towards you in your circumstances. Longing to pull you close. Longing to be your shepherd. And the ultimate expression of the compassion of God is the incarnation and sacrifice of Jesus. God makes himself human. Is he aloof to our suffering? No, he's acquainted with our suffering. God makes himself human. Takes on human form with all of the pain and brokenness that comes with that. Walks the earth, experiences mockery and pain and then ultimately crucified. The ultimate expression of God's compassion is Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus takes all of the sin and brokenness and pain and shame and evil on himself. Because when he saw and learned of the plight, he responds. God's full of compassion. And that's why Christian maturity always looks like an increase in compassion. If you're to walk with God, say, how do I know if like, 
I'm really walking with God. There's a couple indicators. One will be increased compassion. There's a minister in the city, a friend of mine named Father Justin at St. Anthony of Padua in South Vancouver, and I was on a trip with him, and we we're walking through the streets of a city. And uh, there's a few of us, and we kept losing him. So like, and, and Father Justin was wearing his priestly garbs, and we'd be chatting about like soccer or sports or whatever, and then all of a sudden, like, I'd carry on. I'd look, and where did he go? And what kept happening is whenever he saw someone in need, he stopped and would bend low. Like, I couldn't stop him from stopping. He's walked with God. And his heart had been tender. And so whenever he saw brokenness, he stopped. This is the heart of Christian maturity. This is why Randy Watson does the work he does in Nepal. This is exactly what David Gotts talked about 30 years ago when he saw and learned. He was moved. And I think John wants us to look at the contrast between the compassion of Jesus and the response of the religious leaders. Isn't it interesting that like a guy's healed after 40 years? And, and it's safe to say they knew this guy. It's safe to say that. We're not talking about such an extreme population. When he's visiting the temple. They know who this guy is. 40 years. 40 years. And he's healed. And all they can do is grumble but the fact that he's carrying his mat and that Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath day. So fixated on maintaining piety that they missed the work that God was doing. Listen to this. This can happen to us. With the intent and effort to keep the law, they missed the heart of the law. With the intent of keeping the law, they, even worse, missed knowing the heart of the one who gave the law. Jesus reveals that the heart of God is a heart of compassion and that these religious leaders, just like you and I, so often can become, we're completely out of sync. And it's possible for us today. It's possible for us to tithe with detail to the penny and still be stingy and miss the heart of God. It's possible to never swear, never curse, but not use your words to speak life into people when you see them. To follow the law, but miss the heart of the one who gives the instruction. And the whole point of the instruction of God is to draw us into the heart of God. And so Jesus is cutting through the noise and getting to the heart of the matter. I want to also note that the compassion of Jesus in this text confronts our sensibilities. Like, we resonate with the compassion of Jesus towards his brokenness, healing this man. We resonate with the compassion of Jesus when he moves towards the hurting oppressed and heals them. But sometimes the compassion of Jesus offends my sensibilities. How about you? Like when Jesus moves in compassion towards the oppressed, right on Jesus. But what about when he moved towards Zacchaeus, the oppressor? 
Like, what about when Jesus goes to the rich young ruler out of compassion for his heart? It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He goes to this rich guy with tons of power, and his compassion moves him there as well. Zacchaeus, the one who's overcharging taxes, and Jesus sees his heart that longs for wholeness, and his compassion moves him there. So we don't get to pick and choose which parts of the compassion of God we want. We love parsing the love of God. I love love of God that looks like this, but I won't take love of God that looks like that. And we don't get to do that with God. We don't get to pick which parts of his nature we like and then edit and audit him to our preferences. In this text, it's so offensive. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to them, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And it confronts my sensibilities. What? Tender Jesus, why would you say that? Because he loves this guy so much. And God knows that sin leads to death. God knows something about this guy that we miss is that he could get well and still not know wholeness. That he could get well and still experience death. And his compassion is not audited or edited by the sensibilities of those around him. He's true to himself and he's true to truth. And so he speaks to them. He speaks to this guy knowing, I want a deeper work in your life. He says, stop sinning. Like you gotta gotta know that there's something worse that could happen to you than not being able to walk. There's something worse than lying by that pool for 40 40 years that is to, to end up in death. Sin leads to death. And Jesus is going deeper and deeper from the physical to the spiritual to the soul level. This guy, he says, don't be out of sync with me. Get on board with my kingdom. Turn from your life of sin. Repent and believe the good news. What you tasted in your healing, that's the inbreak of a kingdom that's going to mature to a fullness of the entirety of God's kingdom known on planet earth. It says, get on board. Turn from your life of sin. He loves them that much. Jesus can heal bodies, but he wants to do more. And he's here today. And he's speaking to anyone with ears to hear, saying, I can heal you of your sin and lead you to new life. And it raises a big question. Like this text raises tough questions like, does sin lead to sickness? Anybody wondering that? What's the answer? Like, does sin cause sickness in our bodies? And the answer is sometimes. Just a few chapters later is in John chapter 9. The disciples specifically asked Jesus about a blind man. Who sinned? him or his parents, that he's blind. And Jesus says, it's not because of anyone's sin. So it stands to reason that sometimes the sickness is from sin. And sometimes, and maybe most often, it's not. But we would be unwise to miss the seriousness of sin. We'd be unwise to just skirt over this. The text is saying something that we can't miss. Like if we stumbled over the fact that sin could cause sickness, we'd miss the whole point of the text. The text is saying, this is not the worst thing that sin can do to you. And so if we're like uncomfortable with that, then we're not taking seriously the real potential of sin. And if we're honest, we should not be surprised that sin could cause sickness in our bodies. Like as a pastor, I stand with people again and again and again. I see broken lives, broken marriages, broken families, broken cities, and we read on the news broken nations because of sin. It's sin that does this stuff. So we're shocked that it could hurt our bodies? No. In fact, if anything, it could be the severe mercy of God 
to warn us to turn from our life of sin, to find freedom in him. In mercy, God longs for our wholeness, not just that we'd be healed in our bodies, which we will be one day in the new creation, but that we would be delivered from sin. And we need a remedy for sin. We need a balm for our sin. And there's no doctor or medicine. There's no pool you can run to. There's no religious formula you can follow. We need a savior with compassion and authority over sin to say to us, get up, be healed. The compassion of Jesus. And the text also speaks to the power of the words of Jesus. Another way to say it is the text reveals the performative power of God's word. He says, verse 9, get up, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And Jesus is showing us something. John is showing us something in Jesus, that Jesus' words, his voice has power. This man laying by this pool on a superstitious belief for 40 years, no healing. One sentence from the mouth of Jesus, totally healed. I want you to think about this for a bit. Do you know like words have power, right? We get that. Do you ever notice how words get things done? Like even indirect words get things done. Like I could be at a table with you and I could say, is there any salt? And somebody will, I just asked a question, about, is there salt? Someone just starts passing me salt. Like words get things done, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like any salt? Like look what I just made, look what I just made happen, right? It's like words get things done. Okay, let's just, and and the reality of words, this is a little bit of like speech act theory we're doing here. Um, I just got a chuckle from third year English lit student from UBC, I suspect. Um, depending who's doing the speaking, the effect of the words changes. For example, I could walk down the streets of Vancouver and I could say, put your hands up. Unlikely that anyone would do it. If a DJ... says, put your hands up, I think some would. If a police officer in uniform says, put your hands up, high response rate. So depending who does the speaking changes the result. Are you tracking with me? The more authority the person has, the more effectiveness the words. But if a cop says to a paralytic, be healed, what happens? Nothing. What about a president? What about Putin or Biden or Trudeau? Be healed. Nothing. But Jesus says, get up. Jesus says to the storm, shh. Speaks to demons, go, gone. Speaks to the sick, be healed. Cells start regenerating. Even to the dead, Lazarus, come on out. Whew, alive. God in creation speaks, let there be, and it was. I love how Isaiah describes this aspect of the nature of God. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. This is God speaking. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desired and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And this might seem obvious, but I want to state it. Jesus' words have the power they do because of who he is. Because he's God. Because it's God speaking. And this is what angers the religious leaders. This is why they're so furious. It's not just that he's got the mat. It's not just that he's healing on the Sabbath. Go with me to verse 17 and 18. It says this, For this reason, or verse 17, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is always doing this. He's always going around doing things that only God can do, forgiving sins, healing people, speaking on behalf of God, saying things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus again and again and again is claiming to be God, and the religious leaders are furious. And Jesus is showing us that Jesus is not just a man, he's not just a teacher, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a good religious leader, he is God incarnate. That's who's speaking. And so John wants us to see two things about the nature of God, full of compassion and full of authority. And so what do we do with this revelation? What do we do with what John's trying to reveal to us about the nature of God, about his authority, about his compassion? First, we surrender. When you realize the authority someone holds, the response is surrender, yield, submit. Come underneath the authority. I want to invite all of us to come underneath the authority of Jesus this morning. When I read this text, I see um, a contrast of approaches to the fullness that we all long for. We see like the approach of religious legalism. We see the religious leaders trying to make their way to wholeness and salvation. And they do it through more rules, rules on rules. And we see that it finds itself powerless. We see a second way, we see the way of superstition. We see the way of trying to find wholeness. I mean, that's what this guy was after, was wholeness. Like, if I could just get healed and, and sort, of, sort of looking for signs of power in the world around them. Uncontrollable, but signs of power in the world, and trying to get caught up in that. But there's a third and better way, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the speech of Jesus, that he carries the authority, and that when we submit and come underneath that, that is the way to salvation. We see three different ways. The way of superstition, the way of religious legalism, or the way of Jesus. And there are other ways. How are you trying to find wholeness? 
How are you trying to find freedom? How are you trying to find life? The way to fullness of life, the way to freedom, the way to the soul rest you're made for is to surrender to the authority of Jesus, that only his word has the power to heal me of sin, to bring about the recreation we long for. So first thing we do is surrender. We see, we surrender. The second is we find great comfort. Find great comfort. If Jesus is God and his words carry that kind of authority, we are meant to find comfort. This is, after all, the one who said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'm going to be with you always. Behold, I'm making all things new. And those words from my mouth, not powerful. Those words from a police officer's mouth or anyone's president, not, not comforting. But from the words of Jesus, if we could hear them, it's like... My daughter, Millie, has been recently, um, just needs to make sure every night the window is closed. So she goes to bed, and after a little while, she just calls dad, 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 or mom, mom, mom. Is the window open? And I just say, it's closed. You promise? I promise. Okay. Just my word. And the word of Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're forgiven. You belong to me. I'm going to make all things new. And it provides a great comfort. Lastly, what do we do when we discover the authority and compassion of God? We draw near. We draw near. It's so inviting. That's why Jesus would say, come to me, everyone who's tired. Everyone who's burnt out in religion. I'm going to teach you how to really rest. I'm going to rest you bring you to the rest that you're made for.